You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. The story that you're about to hear is by far the most downloaded episode of any I've ever recorded. Released back on September 10th of 2010, the 34-year nightmare is one that my wife consistently tells people is among her favorites of all that I've ever researched. I have to tell you, it's one of my favorites also. It's an excellent story about a man who was stuck in prison for 34 years for an incredibly minor crime. And he probably would have died there if it had not been for his brother visiting him to tell him about some money he had inherited. Cue the sound. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled The 34-Year Nightmare. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. For today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about U.S. presidents. It turns out that only one U.S. president once worked as a professional model and even appeared on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine. So my question for you today is which president did this? Was it one, John F. Kennedy, two, Richard Nixon, three, Gerald Ford, four, Bill Clinton, or five, Barack Obama? Again, which U.S. president once worked as a professional model and appeared on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine? Was it one, John F. Kennedy, two, Richard Nixon, three, Gerald Ford, four, Bill Clinton, or five, Barack Obama? And as always, I'll leave you in suspense and tell you the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story titled The 34-Year Nightmare, which my wife has been bugging me to do simply because it takes place in the small town of Salem, New York, which is just a few miles from where she was raised. It's a story of someone getting stuck in the system without any hope and any way out. So let's first start with a little background. And uh, this is the story of Stephen Heath Dennison, who was born on February 19, 1909, in the town of Salem, New York, which I already mentioned, which is about four miles east of the Vermont border. His father was a guy named George R. Dennison, and he was left with six children after his first wife died. Now, he was unable to care for all these children, so five of them were raised by other relatives. The only child that he kept was a son named George Jr. George Sr. then married a second time to a woman named Hattie, who gave birth to their son named Stephen, who's the subject of this story. Then two years later, a daughter named Mary Grace was born, but sadly she died from polio at age five. And because of her death, tension grew within the household and Steve's dad started to beat mom in anger. She grabbed Steve, uh, who was age eight at the time, and moved back in with her dad. When Steve was 11, he learned that his dad, George Sr., had died at age 55. Now, Steve was far from a great student, and he played hooky all of the time. He basically never went to school. So by the age of 16, he had only completed the seventh grade and decided to drop out. 
But age 16 was also the age that his life would change in a very, very big way. In fact, in a very bad way. You see, on September 9, 1925, he was walking along Route 22 just south of Salem, and he was looking for work. He was thinking of, you know, maybe picking some corn or doing something like that. And along the way, he saw a roadside stand that was owned by a woman named Nellie Hill. Now, the stand sold things like hot dogs, hamburgers, candy, cigarettes, and so on, you know, kind of like a primitive version of what a typical uh, convenience store would be today. Nellie had closed up the stand for lunch, so Steve decided to sit down on a nearby stone and await her return. But Steve, like so many others, had a a two-pack-a-day cigarette habit and became really desperate for a smoke. So with no one around, he pulled out his pocket knife and he cut a hole in the canvas surrounding the stand. It was just big enough for him to step through. While he was inside, he took three boxes of chocolate, a carton of cigarettes, and some other candies and piled them inside a burlap bag that he found in the stand. Now, he was spotted almost immediately and ran as fast as he could. That's what most people would do. But two men gave chase, and he quickly dropped the sack of stolen goods. He really didn't have anything in his possession by that point. So Steve hid behind the bale of hay in a nearby barn, but the police found him, and he voluntarily surrendered. Steve was taken back to the stand where he apologized to Nellie Hill and returned everything except the one pack of cigarettes that he had smoked, and he was then hauled off to jail. He was charged with third-degree burglary of two two two-pound and one half-pound box of Lowney's chocolates, ten packs of Lifesavers, and six chocolate marshmallow bars. Now, for some reason, they didn't charge him with the theft of the cigarettes. The total value? Five bucks. Now, I know that doesn't sound like much today, but I checked and it would be about $60 in today's value, and that's adjusted for inflation. That really must have been some fine chocolate to be worth 60 bucks. Anyway, he was released on $500 bond. Now, three weeks later, on October 6th, Steve was brought before the judge where he pleaded not guilty. But the judge suspected that he had never consulted with a lawyer and asked him if he had done so. And of course, Steve said he had not. So a lawyer in the courtroom offered his services pro bono, but he was only given 10 minutes to discuss the case with Steve. He then changed his plea to guilty. The judge, in turn, gave Steve a one-year probationary sentence, which seems fairly reasonable for the crime he committed. Now, he was required to meet with a Methodist minister named Reverend Claude Winch once each month. Not a real big deal. And then Steve went out and immediately got a job, but he was fired after three months for smoking in the boys' room, if you know what I mean. And because he was embarrassed by losing his job, he stopped going to see Reverend Winch, and on August 12th, he was picked up by an officer for violation of probation. Now, for the second time, he's back in jail, and basically the cigarettes got him in trouble again. After his rearrest, the undersheriff asked him several times about what he and other boys had been doing down at the local fishing hole. There were rumors going around. So Steve told them about their sexual experimentation and also another story about how he's molested by a man at age 11. Now, Steve spent 35 days in the Salem jail before he was transferred downstate to the New York State Reformatory at Elmira. And he was told that with good behavior, he would be out in 13 months. Now, upon arriving at Elmira, he was given an IQ test and he scored a 56, which is very low, uh, which they estimated at the time to be about nine years of age and intelligence. Now, due to his previous interaction with the other boys, he was labeled as, and as a quote, moron sex pervert. That's the end of the quote. 
Steve's biggest problem at Elmira was the same exact problem that got him in trouble the first time. He was desperate for a cigarette, but the rules prohibited it. Uh, and a fellow inmate suggested that he act insane and get transferred to Napanak, which at the time was officially called the State Institution for Male Defective Delinquents at Napanak, New York. And he did just that the next time that he saw a staff doctor. And, of course, he was transferred to Napanak on September 15, 1927, just as he wished. Now, as you'll soon see, this was a big, big mistake on Steve's part. And cigarettes would once again be the cause of it all. Steve's mom did try to get him released from Napanak, but her attempts were denied. You see, Judge Rogers, the Salem judge that originally sentenced Steve, wrote to the Napanak warden that he should not be released until he was, as a quote, cured of his degeneracy. Also, the arresting officer wrote to say, and there's another quote, I would not feel justified in consenting his release without some assurance from the authorities in Napanak that he is cured. He also added that he was the most disgusting beast that I have ever met up with. Now, if it's not obvious, they're referring to his sexuality and not Steve's crimes. At this point, Steve's mom learned that he'd been sentenced for an indeterminate period with a maximum of five years. Somehow, those 13 months got stretched out to five years. And unfortunately, his only advocate, his mother, died on March 23, 1930, and that was the end of anyone trying to get Steve out of prison. Now, his five years were up on August 13, 1931, and he was all set to leave. But instead, Steve was told that there had been a so-called, as a quote, clerical error, that's the end of the quote, and that he was to be recommitted for another five years. This time, however, the doctor included a recommendation for parole. Steve was placed with his mom's sister on December 16, 1931. Unfortunately, it was the height of the Great Depression, and Steve was unable to get a job. But his aunt needed the money desperately and demanded that he pay you know, room and board. So the friction between them escalated very, very quickly, and without an income, she repeatedly denied Steve the right to date a woman that he'd become interested in. The whole situation blew up one day, and Steve grabbed a razor and threatened to kill himself. So his uncle grabbed the razor away, and the situation was uh, quickly diffused. After less than one month of freedom, he was sent back to Napanak on January 14th. Steve quickly fell into a deep depression and started showing increasing signs of mental instability. I mean, 10 years for uh, you know, a petty crime would do that to just about anybody. On March 3rd, 1936, he was transferred to Dannemora State Hospital, which is about 20 miles south of the Canadian border, and it's sometimes referred to as New York Siberia, simply because it's so isolated and cold in the wintertime. Steve was scheduled to be released in about seven months, but as you can probably guess, that did not happen. Now, Dannemora is very different from Napanak. Dannemora was for the criminally insane and offered no treatment, job training, or any kind of rehabilitation, uh, at least at that time. It was basically a place for those who become mentally ill while in prison to spend out their remaining time on earth. Just to give you an idea of what went on there, on a typical day at Dannemora, the prisoners would be placed in a large room where they would simply stare at each other day after day, year after year. Now, as you would expect, after years of being deprived of you know, normal stimulation and any chance for a typical normal life, Steve's condition deteriorated greatly. 
he was subjected to both uh, drug treatments, one of which, you know, placed him into a coma and also electroshock therapy. The records show that he grew angrier, who wouldn't, each time uh, he was subjected to these treatments. Now, believe it or not, Steve was still in Dannemora in the summer of 1960. Keep in mind, he was put into prison back in 1926. And that's when he received word in the summer of 1960. He received word that a visitor had come to see him. It was his half-brother, George, who had last visited Steve 26 years earlier. Now, I should point out that was the last time anyone from the outside had contacted him in any way. George had driven about 125 miles from his home in Schuylerville, New York, to let Steve know that their Uncle Tom had died. Now, since Tom had no children of his own, the money was to be split among George Sr.'s seven children from those two different marriages I had mentioned. Each, including Steve, received 1300 bucks, which is you know a lot of money to some guy in prison. Now, if you had been stuck in prison for 34 years for stealing $5 worth of chocolate, what would you do with the money? As you'd expect, Steve told his brother to keep the cash because he had no use for money in prison. Okay, he didn't. That was a bad joke. He asked George to use the money, of course, to get him out of that place. George was fairly certain that his brother Steve was in fact sane and hired the law firm of Wine and Greenberg in Glens Falls, New York. Now, they sought to get Steve out on a writ of habeas corpus in which they would ask the court to determine if Steve was sane and therefore illegally held. Of course, their first step was to determine whether or not Steve was sane or not. You can't go to court saying someone's sane if they're not. And this proved to be a big step backward. Since Steve could not be taken out of Dannemora for examination, they instead hired a psychologist named Dr. Alan Krakowski to go there and do so for them. And his report of October 4th, 1960 diagnosed Steve as being schizophrenic and that he provided childish and inappropriate responses to his questions, the same exact condition he was diagnosed with when he entered Dannemora initially. Now enters the picture a guy named William Vincent Canale, who had just graduated from law school, law school and was hired by Wine and Greenberg. And one of his first assignments was to research the legal aspects of Stephen Dennison's case. And what he found out was quite interesting. As you may recall, Steve was originally sentenced to five years, which was then extended to 10 years due to that so-called clerical error. Now, just one day prior to the expiration of his 10-year sentence, Dannemora petitioned the Clinton County Court on September 17, 1936, to, to declare Steve as insane. Eight days later, Judge Thomas F. Croak issued the commitment order to do just that. At the same time, the court made the decision to commit Steve without telling him what was going on. That means he wasn't provided with a lawyer, he didn't have a hearing, there was no trial, nor did he have the chance to produce witnesses to prove that he was sane. He was recommitted after his prison sentence had expired and without any knowledge why it was being done. In other words, he was denied due process of law that is provided for by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Canale realized that this was the ticket to get Stephen out. While he couldn't prove that he was sane, they could prove that he was imprisoned illegally for 24 of the 34 years that he had been held by the state. 
Now, as you know, chocolate thieves are incredibly dangerous. So as a result, Steve was transported to the county courthouse, handcuffed with a ball and chain attached to his leg, which they were nice enough to remove just prior to entering the courtroom. The presiding judge heard both sides of the case, but as you'd expect, the state didn't have much of a leg to stand on. So on December 16, 1960, after 34 years, 4 months, and 5 days in prison, 51-year-old Stephen Dennison became a free man. Now the scary part, at least this part that I find scary, is that he really wasn't being imprisoned that long because of his chocolate theft. He was imprisoned that long because of his sexuality. Steve was immediately taken back to Dannemora, but this time it was without the shackles. And the state was nice enough to provide him with a new set of clothes, you know, a suit, some underwear, hat, coat, etc. And they even gave him a razor, something you certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have gotten in a mental institution. And taped to his discharge papers was all the money he had saved over his 34 years in the system. Get this. They taped two pennies to his discharge papers. And they even made him sign the paper to confirm that he received the money. Now, Steve went on to live with his half-brother upon his release, but like, you know, life was incredibly difficult for him. It was like he had time-traveled and was just dropped into a different era. Just think how much uh, you know the world had changed technologically during the time of his imprisonment. Steve didn't know how to do even the simplest of things. He couldn't turn on an electric light. Uh, he didn't know how to dial a telephone. All that stuff had been done for him while he was in prison. Clearly, a lawsuit was to follow. Illegally imprisoning someone for all those years comes at a great cost. You know, the inability to work and accumulate savings, the inability to date, get married, the right to vote. And let's not forget the toll that imprisonment in a psychiatric institution has on one's mental state. So in February of 1961, they sued the state for $500,500 in damages. The trial started in Albany, New York on November 3rd, 1965, and took a full month, although the actual proceedings lasted just four days. In preparation for the lawsuit, Steve was tested by several psychologists and found to be fairly average in IQ. It was also learned during the testimony that the psychologist that they hired you know, to go see him at Dannemora, Dr. Alan Krakowski, never actually examined Steve in any way, shape, or form. He simply read through his 34 years of prison records and determined that he was schizophrenic. But the records that he looked at had one big major flaw, and that was that Steve had only been given two psychological exams during his entire 34 years in the system. The first was when he initially entered Elmira as a teenager, and the second was a year later when he was transferred to Napanak so he could smoke his cigarettes. For the next 33 years, every psychological report was basically a reworking of those initial reports. A decision was handed down on March 24, 1966 to award Steve $115,000, but he would never ever see a penny of it. The state of New York filed an appeal, and one year later, on May 22, 1967, the appellate court in Albany reversed the decision. It seems that it was standard practice at the time to recommit prisoners after their term had expired if they were deemed mentally ill. And they basically said you can't go back and apply modern rules and regulations to practices that in the past were deemed correct at the time. 
They appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, but the case was never heard. And at that point, the story just fell out of the headlines. I could find little more about Stephen Dennison. I do know that he did go on public assistance and worked as a janitor for a while, but that's about it. I was able to confirm that he died on May 4th, 1991 at the age of 82. So kids, stay away from those cigarettes. Just look what they did for Stephen Dennison, a 34-year nightmare that only ended because Steve was fortunate enough to inherit some money. Just think how many people may have been stuck there simply because they were not that lucky. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. From Hollywood, General Foods brings you the new Beulah Show, starring Amanda Randolph as... Beulah, a gal who knows all the answers, but nobody ever pops a question. (laughs) Yes, from Hollywood, it's the new Beulah Show, brought to you transcribed by General Foods. Love that man. Indians sure have got something to sing about. Because Post Toasties are the heap good cornflakes, and they really make your breakfast. No fooling. Just one bowl, and you'll know you've struck it rich. You'll find all at once why everybody says Post Toasties are the best thing that's happened to corn since the Indians discovered it. You see, there's a special sweet kernel corn flavor toasted right in. And what comes out is the crispest, freshest breakfast you ever dipped a spoon into. Nothing like them. And Post Toasties, you know, is one of the famous triple wrap Post cereals, guaranteed fresh or triple your money back. Try them. Get Post Toasties, the heap good cornflake. That commercial for Post Toasties is from the November 13th, 1953 episode of Beulah, and it was titled Flash Magazine Visits. And you probably realize from uh, the commercial that Post Toasties was Post's version of Kellogg's Corn Flakes. And it was originally called Elijah's Manna, but outrage over the name by religious groups caused sales to drop significantly, and the name was changed to Post Toasties in 1908. The cereal was discontinued in April of 2006, but was reintroduced in 2010. That's this year. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. And our first tidbit dates back to uh, December 20th, 1925, where it's reported that merchants were spending more and more money each year to deal with the ever-increasing problem of parking cars. You see, with the explosion of automobile ownership at the time, customers of these stores have been unable to find parking spots in the crowded cities. As a result, Secretary of Commerce and not yet President of the U.S. Herbert Hoover commissioned the first ever study of automobiles in urban areas. 
While the results had not been published at the time, the article states that solving this problem was necessary. If not, stores would need to move to more spacious areas, causing a decrease in property values in the cities. Now, this was right on the money. The stores would eventually move to the suburbs and leave, mo you know, and leave most cities in very sad shape. Our second tidbit dates back to October 4th, 1947. I have to say this is one of the more bizarre ones I've read lately, where it's reported that two 21-year-old German women were arrested for trying to mail themselves to their fiancés in the United States. Doris von Knobloch was fined $10 for attempting to mail herself to Adolf Berndt in New York City. She stood 5 feet 4 inches tall, and her friend Sigrid Kraft wedged her and actually sealed her in a box that measured 29 inches long by 21 inches high by 21 inches wide. That's a small box to be put in. In her possession were sleeping tablets, which she was going to use if her conditions proved too cramped, and a razor blade to slash her wrists if she felt that she was suffocating. Doris had already spent the night in the box before she was discovered, and luckily that she was since she would probably have frozen to death in the unheated compartment of the cargo plane. Her friend Sigrid, who didn't go through with her part of the plan, was fined $5 as an accomplice. What she had planned on doing was sending herself to her fiancé John Walters in Laurenburg, North Carolina, if her friend Doris had succeeded uh, in sending herself to her fiancé in New York City. Our last little tidbit is from December 27, 1955, where it's reported that Vice President Richard Nixon, yes, that Richard Nixon, had been named 1955's Best Dressed Man by the American Women's Institute. They claimed that he was, and this is a quote, neat, smart, and striking. That's the end of the quote. And I have to say, none of those uh, concepts ever cross my mind when I think about Richard Nixon. They also added that he was the ideal sought by the average American man. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I asked which U.S. president once worked as a professional model and appeared on the cover of Cosmo. And here were the choices I gave. John F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. The answer is Gerald Ford. He appeared on the April 1942 cover of Cosmo with his then-girlfriend Phyllis Brown. They were also featured in 17 photos of the March 1940 issue of Look magazine, which is now defunct but was once second to Life magazine in general interest magazine circulation. 
Uh, if you're curious, Phyllis Brown had dropped out of Connecticut College for Women and started a fledgling modeling agency with Gerald Ford. Ford's modeling career ended with the end of their relationship in 1942, shortly after the Cosmo cover. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing today's story on Stephen Dennison, as well as our question of the day on the U.S. president that was once a model, our retro sponsor, Post Toasties, and the news of the weird past tidbits on the urban car parking problem, the two women that try to mail themselves to their fiancés in the United States, and the most surprising one that Nixon was 1955's best-dressed man. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, uh, both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and, of course, from your local library. If for some crazy reason you would like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. And lastly, as always, I'd appreciate if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners uh, to this podcast. Again, I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye.